Hello and welcome to the Iowa Hospital Association's podcast, Getting to Know Iowa Hospital Leaders. My name is Joa Hogan. Today we talk with Dr. Thomas Benzoni. Dr. Thomas Benzoni is an emergency medicine physician who has been practicing for more than 40 years and is affiliated with multiple hospitals in central Iowa. Dr. Benzoni is also an assistant professor at Des Moines University and member of the Iowa Hospital Physician Leadership Program facilitated by the Iowa Hospital Association. Well, welcome Dr. Benzoni to the podcast today. Hey, thank you and hey to your listeners. Can you share with us your journey from where you grew up to your position as an emergency medicine physician? How long you got? <laughs> it's got as much time as needed. The story starts a long, long time ago in rural New York. And if you think that Iowa is rural, Iowa could take a lesson in rural from New York. Uh, my journey into emergency medicine involved bicycles and anything that starts like that never ends well. I used to like to mess with bikes. I still do. And I'm sure when I put, assembled my bike that I did something wrong with the front bearings. There were 10 of us, just kids and mom used to get rid of us by sending us into town to get something useless. That she, I'm sure she didn't need, just gave her some peace and quiet. And we were coming down the hill past years this pond really fast. No helmets. And I don't remember the next month. I think I kind of remember them coming to get me. They went to a neighbor's house and got a, a tractor with a hay wagon and picked me up, you know, one one kid on each uh, each limb. I didn't say anything about ceasefire precautions. Threw me in the hay wagon, put me in the back of the van, which had plastic seats so they could wipe the blood off. And the only memory I have of that month was laying in the ER. There's no CAT scans or anything. Laying in the ER thinking, geez, there's a job in putting people back together? That's how I got started. That's your motivation. And then where'd you go from there? Well, after that, I uh, I spent quite a few years. I left home at 13 and traveled the country and did all sorts of things. Worked uh, construction in North Dakota for a while. Was out in California. And then eventually ended up in the St. Louis area and went to high school. From high school, our high school sent a lot of the people up to Creighton University. So I went to Creighton undergraduate. And that's where things started to coalesce. You know, I came from a background of, to me, going to college wasn't a game. It wasn't something you did to find yourself. If you wanted to find yourself, you know, you you do something different. It was it was serious. And I had to find a course or a, a, a pathway in life that would allow me to support myself. I had always enjoyed the sciences. And Creighton University at the time had a program in medical technology which is essentially three years of sciences. And then we would have one year of training at the new St. Joe's, Creighton St. Joe's Hospital. I know it's not closed, but it was new then. So I spent a year training at Creighton St. Joe's in medical technology, BSMT through the American Society of Clinical Pathologists, took my boards in that and certified in running hospital laboratories. I then spent a year in Sioux City at the old St. Joe's Hospital and I used to bug the pathologist both at uh, Sioux City and Omaha so bad that finally they told me, why don't you go to med school? You're just bothering us. And one of them wrote me a letter of recommendation. In 1979, I entered what is now Des Moines University several name changes ago and graduated in 1983. I ended up in Pontiac, Michigan in the early days of emergency medicine at Pontiac Osteopathic. This is going to sound negative. It isn't actually negative, but unless you're in EM, you won't understand it. Pontiac Osteopathic was in a real dump area. 
that's not a negative. It was an area of high poverty, high violence. It was a very difficult area to live in. The people who lived there lived in very difficult circumstances. So I don't mean that as a negative to the area or to the people who were there. It was hard. It was harsh. We saw black tar heroin come in. We saw all the things with poverty. We also had the Pontiac Silverdome there. So we were essentially a trauma center at Pontiac. Fantastic training. From there, we went to Omaha, Nebraska, back to Creighton. My wife was family medicine, or actually a slot open there. She was with the public health service. So I took also a slot in family medicine there. So I would be attending uh, during the night and a resident by day. In 1987, we were assigned to the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky, Jackson, Kentucky. We started a hospital there, Kentucky River Medical Center, that is still working to this day. Uh, Dr. O'Shea wrote the procedure manuals for the hospital. I was chief of staff. I got the ER up and running, 18,000 visits a year. Got involved with the University of Kentucky, UK Lexington, with some of their researchers in some of the early work in cardiology and in air medical. So I had four fantastic years in the Appalachians. So good that we continue to maintain those connections. To this day, in fact, this next week, Dr. O'Shea is going with a group of students back to our old place in the Appalachians to let students see what life is like for these people. These are American citizens. They have a very hard life. It's harsh and uh, healthcare is being brought to their community. Our students can learn about it there. From there, I went back to New York, spent about three years in the area where I was born and raised and smashed my head practicing emergency medicine there and was eventually recruited to Sioux City, Iowa, and arrived there, interviewed there during the floods of 93, arrived there in 94, and spent several very, very nice decades in Sioux City uh, at, a, at a wonderful practice that I just absolutely loved. Eventually, it was time to move on. We got into teaching and moved to Des Moines, and uh, so I continued to practice a bit of emergency medicine and teach and need to retire. That's the short synopsis. Wow. I, I don't know where to begin. That's quite a story. So you did mention that uh, the Appalachian Mountains Hospital that you created, you said there's some folks going to revisit that area. When's the last time you were on site there? Well, for myself, it was a couple of years ago since I visited with the group from DMU. But every year we do send a group down there. Got it. Uh, I was back a couple of years ago, just just thoroughly enjoyed it. Really loved the people. Uh, like yeah. I said, it's a, it's a poor area, but can you say they're sweet people? I mean, that's I, I don't really know the proper term for it, but they're just, they're good people, good people. And and what's the biggest differences you've seen since you first arrived there until a couple years ago? Have, have you seen progress in their access to health care or resources? Well, the little hospital that we built was a major change. There's some of the 10 poorest hospital or some 10 poorest counties in the nation were there and they had no health care. At the time, jobs basically were mining, mining and mining. And that was about it. So health care was, well, education. I mean, education much beyond high school was virtually unknown, but by bringing the hospital there, we made getting an education something to be sought after. Uh, some of the people who were in grade school and high school there are now, they, they saw the hospital go up, they saw an opportunity and are now caring for their own people. And to me, there's nothing better 
than you taking care of the people with whom you were born and raised. It's a real service commitment. Yeah, I'm sure you could tell story after story about that experience. That could make its own podcast itself. It was really something. Like I said, there's so much to unpack within your journey. One thing you did reference is that your career, you started out in the medical laboratory technician area. Can you tell us more about that? It was, you can guess from the story with the bicycles, which was not very successful, but physics has a way of teaching us that. I always kind of like to tinker with machinery. Uh, I blew up plenty of test tubes in, in high school. There's uh, there's some reagents still on the ceiling of, the, of our old chemistry lab uh, in high school. And I just enjoyed playing with the sciences. So when I got into laboratory medicine, it was kind of a natural. We were just making the transition to a lot of the automated machinery. So I would maintain... I understand now it's purely, it's quite antiquated, but at the time it was really something like a SMAC 7, SMAC SMAC simultaneous medical analyzer for chemistries, 7s, 24s, 12s, ACA automated clinical analyzers. These were all new machines at the time and they were revolutionizing laboratory medicine. And do you have any advice for someone that's considering going into that field? absolutely get into it. There are two-year and four-year degrees. I still think the four-year degree is useful. I I like it better than the two-year degree. You get much more hands-on. You learn much more histology. You learn a lot more pathology. And I got to tell you, it made med school much easier for me. You know, we we would do microbiology and they would start talking about organisms. Well, I had seen these things under the microscopes. I had perhaps gone and seen the patients that that had these diseases. When we would talk about diabetes, I had drawn blood from diabetics and seen what their blood work looked like. We talked about blood types. Well, I had blood type people. I would thoroughly understand how important it is to get the blood type correct. In fact, I remember one instance, this is uh, some of the weird things you do in this job. Uh, We were with a process improvement committee, and there were some complaints that the lab is always making us come down and label these things. They don't understand how busy we are. And I was put on the committee. And I'm sure that people in the lab probably thought I was going to throw them under the bus. So I think they were kind of surprised when the ER doc came down firmly on the lab side. And what I did is have the ER people who were complaining about it come down to the lab. We had a rack of 10 unlabeled blood tubes. Uh, here are the blood tubes from your patient. Oh, and nine other patients, incidentally. None of these have labels. Understand that if the label is wrong, what I do in blood bank is going to kill your patient. Would you please tell me which one of these blood tubes came from your patient? That ended the argument. And our people then understood. And that's one of the major reasons now you see our staff labeling blood tubes at the bedside. It is really very important you might know whose it was at the bedside going to bed and gets down to the lab with nine other unlabeled tubes. You don't know who it is and a mistake will kill the patient. Yeah, I can I can definitely see the benefit of your background in your current practice. Absolutely. Do you have any special hobbies or unique activities you enjoy doing? You'll probably quickly learn that I don't probably learn very quickly. I still like to bike. Oh, got it. Nice. <laughs> And sometimes I bike too fast. A couple of years ago, immediately pre-pandemic, my you know, my wife let me get this a giant, a little skinny, 120 pound, 22 millimeter wide tires. The thing is way too fast for me. But I gotta tell you, it sure puts a smile on my face. 
I can get moving on that thing and keep up with traffic. It's just, it's just absolutely lovely. And I love the trail systems. So when the weather turns nice, I'll spend a month not driving a car. I come out, you know, the back door and, uh, and pick up a trail and take it. I can take it uh, down to just a, oh, a mile or so from Methodist. I can take it right into the back door of Lutheran. Uh, I can take trails to within, oh, about a half a mile of West. I can take them very close to DMU. I can get to lots of places south, lots of places out of West Des Moines. It's just, it's great to get around. And it does several nice things. One of them is the hospitals are nice enough to keep a shower around for us. You can guess the whole staff is glad for that. When I come in, I'm in a good mood. And when I go home, I burn off the adrenaline from work and I leave all the stress behind. So I think I'm probably a little more pleasant when I get home. And do you do any organized bike riding, you know, like Ragbriar? I know there's a lot of organized bike riding events. Do you ever participate in those? Well, in Sioux City, we used to have uh, the teams, the DMU team stayed with us. Uh, teams from Italy stayed with us. My family's from Northern Italy. And we used to have a riot with them. We'd go out on some rag by there. My brother-in-law is nutser than I am. And he does rag by essentially backwards. So that's what we're doing this year. Now, it doesn't mean we bike backwards. Okay, I was going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) I assume not, but you sound like a pretty good biker. So maybe that's the next level of bike. Yeah, well, I... Don't tempt me. I might do something <laughs> like that. No, the what he found, the, one of the major advantages is Ragbride is going to be occurring next week. Well, the small towns are ready to go. Hospitality is ready to go. A lot of beers already in the coolers, but there's no customers. What do you think happens when 15, 20 bikers roll into town? The town's expecting, you know, a thousand bikers in a few days. We kind of get the royal treatment. They get some income a few days beforehand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they say hospitality is ready to go. The people are absolutely wonderful to interact with. And we're not putting up with the crowds of of 10,000. And then do you eventually meet up with the traditional ragbri riders? Yeah, we'll often meet up with the with the ragbriers across and and, uh, go to the expos with them. And, uh, yeah, just participate in a lot of ragbri as well. That's a great idea. I've never heard of that. Our final question for today is, do you have, and I'm sure the answer is yes, but uh, do you have any extraordinary story that occurred in a hospital setting you could share with us? There's decades of them. Some of them are thoroughly tragic, and many of them get buried beneath the uh, detritus that's, that, uh, that many years of working in this job. I've. This is a very strange way to say this, but I have had the great honor to pronounce dead some of my colleagues. And I know that sounds very weird, but uh, I remember one of the old surgeons who trained me, got me involved with advanced trauma life support. Uh, He became very ill in his later years. And I remember when he would come in, he and his wife knew us and he would, he would, to me, he would give us the honor of coming to his home hospital where he had spent so many years taking care of our trauma patient and entrusting us to take care of his body and keep him. We, we couldn't fix what was wrong with him, but we could at least keep him comfortable and treat him with dignity. To me, that was a great honor from one of the people who trained me that they would trust me with the care in their final months, weeks, and even days. 
I want to thank you so much for being on our episode today, Dr. Thomas Spinzoni. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Hey, and thank you and hey to all your listeners. I look forward to seeing you sometime at the Iowa Hospital Physician Leadership Program that you participate in. Come by socially. I don't need you professionally. This podcast has been an opportunity to get to know Iowa hospital leaders. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for another episode next month.